Turn with me to Matthew 12. And we are starting a new passage today at verse 22. And it uh, goes through verse 32. So let's read it first. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This section presents to us what is commonly known as the unpardonable sin, namely blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And by the very words of Jesus himself in verse 32, he states that there is here an unforgivable sin, and it is to speak against the Holy Spirit. Now, many Christians are familiar with this passage, but many of them do not always understand it. Uh, and there have been many false fears that have arisen because of a misunderstanding of this passage. Uh, so I want us to concentrate on this passage for a couple of weeks and trust that the Spirit of God will give you a clear understanding as to what it means to blaspheme the Spirit and how and why that was an unpardonable sin. But first, let's back up here from here for a few minutes. God, by virtue of his nature, is a God of forgiveness. It is his nature to forgive. For example, Psalm 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving. In Psalm 103.3, it says, He pardons all your iniquities. Uh, in Daniel 9.9, in his great prayer to God, Daniel declares, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. At the end of the prophet Micah's prophecy, Micah 7, 18, he says, who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? And verse 19 says, you'll cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So God is a God of forgiveness. The Old Testament abounds with examples that God forgives. Adam and Eve sinned, God forgave them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sinned, and God forgave them. 
When Moses sinned, God forgave him. When Israel, under the leadership of the judges and the kings, sinned, God forgave them. And throughout the flow of the history of his covenant people, God forgave and forgave and forgave over and over and over again. You come into the New Testament, you see the same picture. 1 John 2.12, the apostle says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. The apostle Paul told the Ephesians that in him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians 1.14, he says that is Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God is in the business of forgiving. That is the essence of the biblical message. Man is a sinner, but God forgives. And so then we should consider the fact that Jesus says in our text that there is an unforgivable sin, and that ought to be something that demands our clear understanding. Uh, because on the surface it may appear that God is going against the very grain of his nature unless we understand truly what he's saying. You know, it doesn't really matter how severe the sin, God can still forgive. I know there are people who think that they have sinned some kind of sin that is so bad and heinous and so gross that God will never forgive them, but that's not the case. Uh, I have known a murderer who came to faith in Christ, and after serving 15 years in prison, he was released and served the Lord faithfully in ministry in a local church for many years. I have known people with long histories of adultery and prostitution and illegal drug use who came to faith in Christ. Uh, I once ministered to a prison inmate who was serving a life sentence with a minimum of 25 years because his list of various crimes was so long he was classified as a habitual offender. Yet I'm convinced he had truly trusted Christ and was more spiritually deep than many of the people sitting in the pews at Lakeside Community Chapel. Uh, just speak with Mike Derry sometime about his son, Mike Jr., who's currently in prison here in Florida, serving 25 years for second-degree murder for killing a prostitute. He had a long history of being a drug dealer, using drugs, had previously served two years in prison for those crimes, but after being apprehended and sent to prison for the murder, he became a believer. And in the years since, he's been a Bible study leader. He's read. He is conversant in the Puritans. He uh, uh, studied biblical Greek so that he can study the New Testament in the original language. Uh, he loves the Lord. He suffered greatly in prison, uh, being persecuted by the unbelieving inmates. Um, but he's faithful to the Lord. He'll be released in July of 2026, uh, just three years from now, and he plans to come here when he's released. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting him. I hope that you will welcome him also as a fellow believer and brother in Christ. His sins have been forgiven in Christ despite having been so severe. But in my mind, the worst sin that any human being could ever, would ever, or ever has committed is very obvious. The worst possible sin would be to kill the Son of God. I mean, I can't imagine anything worse than that. That sin not only embodies murder, but it also includes the most hateful, vicious rejection of God. And yet it is precisely that sin 
which Jesus demonstrates is forgivable. Because in Luke 23, 34, as he hangs on the cross, he looks down at those who have taken his life and he looks to the Father and he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know, do not know what they're doing. Even killing the Son of God is a forgivable sin. Another issue. It isn't the volume of sin that is unforgivable any more than it is the kind of sin. If you've ever been to one of our baptismal services, and I know you all have, You've seen children who are 11 or 12 years old be baptized, as well as people who are in their 50s, 60s, even 70s. Those children don't have a long track record of sin, but the Lord forgave them of their sin when they repented and trusted him. And he also forgave those older folks who had a long history of sin in their lives. So it isn't the volume that is unforgivable, and it isn't the particular kind of sin that is unforgivable. So that tells us that the unpardonable sin is a very unique thing. And in no way does it violate the forgiving heart of God. If you look in the scripture, you find that God forgives every kind of sin. I just love 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. I, do, I know you do too. Remember, here's what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now, if the Apostle Paul had stopped right there, we would all be in trouble. <laughs> but he didn't. Because the rest of verse 11 says, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And when you read through the scriptures, you find people who were idolaters, murderers, liars, deceivers, blasphemers, drunkards, who were all forgiven and became pillars of the faith. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Samson, David, Simon, Peter, Paul, he even forgives people who think they have no sin. That, that may be the most magnanimous forgiveness of all. Uh, because that is the supreme sin, to think that you yourself are sinless. Uh, he forgives the self-righteous. Some people say, well, then it must be that the unpardonable sin is a sin of rejecting Christ. Listen, if the sin of rejecting Christ was unforgivable, then none of us could be forgiven. Because every one of us, to one degree or another, before our redemption, were Christ rejectors. So that is forgivable also. In fact, in John 16, 8, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Why did he have to convict people of those things? Because they reject that they are sinners. They reject that Jesus is the righteous Savior who takes away sin. And they reject the idea that they face eternal judgment. It takes the work of God to convict people of those things. The Apostle Paul was a living testimony that God can forgive a blasphemer. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.13 that he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So we've seen quite clearly that 
No one can sin so greatly that God can't forgive them because God is a forgiving God. And we've seen lots of examples of serious sinners in God's word. But let me address, quickly address another issue that a lot of people don't think about or use to excuse themselves before God. And that is that they don't think their sin is all that significant. Uh, they say, well, I've never committed any big sin. I haven't killed anybody or raped anyone. I haven't beaten my wife. In fact, I've been faithful to her. Uh, I've never committed adultery. Sure, I've, I've lied, but never about anything really big. And when I was a kid, I shoplifted some candy one time, but I've never stolen anything else. I don't even cheat on my taxes. So I'm sure God will understand and forgive me. Listen carefully. There is no forgiveness at any time for even the smallest sin without meeting one condition. And that condition is repentance and confession and a turning in faith to Jesus Christ. In the New Covenant, the required condition for forgiveness is repentance and confession and faith in Jesus Christ. If that condition is met, even the greatest sin can be forgiven. If it is not, then the smallest sin will result in eternal judgment and eternal hell because it is cosmic treason against a holy God. And just to give you a little hint as to why the Pharisees couldn't be forgiven, the reason they were beyond pardon is because they perceived themselves as beyond the need for repentance. Now, let's begin looking through this passage. As I said before, it'll take us two or three weeks to wrap it up, but we'll eventually get there. And as we approach the passage, please remember the context. Jesus is preaching and teaching, healing, casting out demons in Galilee. He had expanded his ministry by sending out his 12 chosen disciples. He'd given them power over disease and demons so that he could multiply his healing ministry as well as his ministry of deliverance. He had given them instructions to proclaim the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the same time, as there is an escalation of the proclamation of the kingdom, there is, and there is healing and deliverance from the powers of darkness, the king is presenting himself to the people and giving them a taste of his kingdom. It's a demonstration that he is the Messiah, intended to show them glimpses or previews of what will occur when the kingdom finally and fully comes. But there, as there is an escalation in exposure, there, as there's, there's this increase in ministry opportunities, at the same time, there is mounting rejection. John 1.11 is being fulfilled. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And as the gospel writers record this period in the life of Jesus, they record the attitude of rejection that is growing against him and building more and more to a climax. Luke records a similar blasphemous accusation in Luke 11. But Matthew selects this incident in verses 22 to 32 as the symbol of the climax of the rejection of Christ. There were many such blasphemies of Christ, but this incident in Matthew's gospel brings the whole thing to a head, as it were. At, this is the point at which we truly see that ultimately and finally the leadership of Israel will not accept Christ. Remember, we've been seeing this as it's grown in chapters 11 and 12. 
First 10 chapters present Christ as the king. Chapters 11 and 12 present the rejection of the king. It's been moving and growing all along, and now we see it in focus. We, we saw some people criticized him, then there was indifference towards him, then there was rejection. And now it's not just rejection, but it's open blasphemy of him, and they have reached the epitome of rejection. This is indeed a tragic moment. Uh, for centuries, through all of the unbelievable struggles of the nation of Israel, they had lived in hope of the Messiah. Uh, there was a desire of every Jewish girl that she should mother the Messiah. It was the heart cry of every prophet and every teacher in Israel that he would live to see the day the Messiah came. They wanted that deliverance. That was their hope and their dream. But when he came, they rejected him. They turned on him. They wanted him dead. So beginning in verse 22, let's focus on this very important passage where we see the climax of the rejection of Christ. There are five segments in this passage, five elements in the final rejection of Christ. They are the action of Jesus in healing a man, the amazement of the crowd, the accusation by the Pharisees, the answer to his accusers, and the anathema he pronounced on his accusers. So let's begin with the action of Jesus in healing a man. Verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. This man has multiple physical problems. He was demon-possessed, he was blind, mute, and possibly also suffered from deafness, because that is often associated with the inability to speak. Uh, or it may have been that he could hear, but the demon had made him mute. Uh, there's not enough information to be dogmatic about that. Uh, but I don't think any of us are shocked by the fact that Jesus healed him. Uh, because he had healed hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people with similar problems to this man during the time of his ministry. There's nothing particularly novel about the fact that he healed this man. As was often the case, the healing demonstrated in one act Jesus' dominion over both the spirit world of demons and the physical world of disease and disability. He undeniably possessed the power to heal every kind of disease, to cast out any kind and any number of demons, and even to restore life to the dead. He had performed thousands of instantaneous, total, permanent, verifiable healings. His supernatural power could no longer be questioned, either by the common multitudes or by the more educated and skeptical religious leaders. But they were ambivalent about who he was. Even though they knew he was demonstrating supernatural power, they refused to believe in him. Uh, you remember the blind man in John 9 who told the religious leaders, you know, what? Are you, you're telling me you're confused about who he is? <laughs> you know, listen, I used to be blind. Now I see. So you tell me where he came from. I mean, it's obvious he's not from this neighborhood. You know, that's basically what he was saying there. Uh, it, it's very clear to them he had power beyond anything that they could perceive in the human dimension. 
But while they could see that, they refused to accept him as their Messiah because he didn't fit their preconceived perception and perspective as to what the Messiah would be. You see, they were saying to themselves, hey, where's this military army and all the royal fanfare? Where's the revolution in the streets? Where's the fire and the fury and the overthrow of Rome? This guy is nothing more than a meek, humble, compassionate carpenter who hangs around with poor people and sinners, and he doesn't start riots or stir up people, and he won't argue and mix it up. How could this be the Messiah? No, absolutely no. Yeah, he can do a bunch of miraculous things, and we acknowledge that, but maybe there's another explanation. You see, that's the ambivalence they were in, and that's precisely why the, the prior passage is so important. Verse 17 says, He's this way because Isaiah said he would be this way. He would be a servant. He would not wrangle or hassle or argue or cause riots and revolutions. And he would not trample over people. He wouldn't seek to gain glory for himself. Rather, he will concentrate on the poor, the hurting, the the broken, the people whose flickering wick is almost out. He'll be gentle and compassionate. Back in chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, says he's gentle and humble. And that was what they couldn't handle. Even though Matthew points out that it's what Isaiah said would be true about him. They didn't realize he would ultimately come to conquer. He will do that, but he'll first come in meekness and gentleness and compassion. They didn't see that part of it, so that's why Matthew quotes the passage that was important for them to take note of that as we read his gospel later and, and to see that Jesus was not contrary to Old Testament pictures of the Messiah. So when this healing takes place, it's so spectacular that it sets off a reaction that triggers the whole issue of where he gets his power. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees have been dogging his footsteps for some time. And we learned in verse 14 the Herodians are on him too. So all three groups, scribes, Pharisees, Herodians, are stalking him, seemingly all the time now, looking for a way in which they can trap him (coughs) into doing something that will present a valid reason to kill him. And then he does this miracle. Now we know that demons can possess people. There is no question about that. The Bible is very clear on that. And they can affect people in many ways, perhaps in ways we might never expect. From the Old Testament, we learn that there are demons who control various evil governments in the world. I'm sure there's several in Washington, D.C. On the other hand, there are demons who cause people to flail around and froth at the mouth like a wild animal. Uh, There are demons who cause mental illness and drive those people to commit horrible crimes. There are demons who create physical illnesses, disabilities in people, as in the case of this fellow. That's how Satan and his forces function. But please understand, I'm not saying that everyone who behaves like I have described is demon-possessed. Man's fallen sinful nature is so depraved, man is quite capable of doing many, if not most, of the things I've described without being demon-possessed. But at the same time, I think we excuse some behavior that's clearly demonic as having been caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain or something like that when it's actually demonic possession or influence. 
Um, and in societies and cultures in which the primary religion is the worship of false gods and demons, such as in Benin, West Africa, where the official religion is voodoo, uh, there are far greater incidents of actual demonic possession. And during the time when Jesus was here, demon possession was a major problem because God has invaded Satan's territory. And it's full-scale spiritual warfare as Satan's forces united to fight against the Son of God. And let me just add that true believers in Jesus Christ cannot be demon-possessed. Uh, they have the indwelling Holy Spirit in them, and thus there can be no commingling of light and darkness within a genuine Christian. Uh, however, they can be tormented and oppressed and harassed externally, even to a severe degree, such as was Job or the Apostle Paul, uh, who was allowed to endure a satanic thorn in the flesh. Uh, in such situations, the believer must appeal to God in prayer uh, to prevent the demon from attacking him, that's Jude 9, uh, and rely on the power and truth of the scriptures, uh, especially the gospel, to deal with the situation. So anyway, in our text here in verse 22, this man was brought to Jesus who healed him and cast out the demon. And instantly, not only does he have spiritual deliverance from demonic control, but he has total wholeness. Uh, he was blind, and instantly he sees. He was mute, and immediately he talks. He was all, if, he, if he was also deaf, then immediately he hears everything. And all of his faculties function as if there had never been a problem. Now that's a far cry from the phony kind of healings you see today. Um, I guarantee you, you've never seen a truly blind person in one of those huckster faith healers that are around today. Um, it just doesn't happen because they're all fakes. Uh, but Jesus healed this man with just a word. And that brings us to the second element, which is the amazement of the crowd. Verse 23. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? Notice the crowd's response. It says they were astounded. This is one of the small changes that the Legacy Standard Bible translators made to the New American Standard Bible that makes me really like the Legacy Standard Bible. With the exception of the NIV and the CSB, all other English translations of the Bible use the word amazed here. Uh, but this word means more than simply to be amazed. Uh, I'm amazed when I see some sleight of hand magician pull a trick that I don't understand. But I don't think the word amazed gives the full understanding of this word. The word here means to be totally astounded, to be beside yourself with astonishment. One lexicon described it as uh, meaning to be or become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. Uh, it isn't just saying, oh my, isn't that something? It's losing it. In fact, Bible scholar William Hendrickson paraphrases it this way, they were knocked out of their senses. Uh, to put it in our modern day vernacular, we would say they were blown away. Uh, they, they just couldn't handle it. It was an overwhelming thing. And the tense of the verb here indicates a kind of continual state of being out of your mind with astonishment. 
And they start asking one another the question, can this man really be the son of David? And the use of a particular Greek particle here indicates that while they expected their answer to be no, they're now open to the possibility that the answer was yes. Uh, you could translate it this way. This can't be the son of David, can it? They're beginning to recognize that such miracles are possible messianic signs. The title, Son of David, is a title for the Messiah that is based on 2 Samuel 7.13, where God tells David that his son will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the title, Son of David, became a name for the Messiah. And when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, what did they cry out? Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, they were saying he was the ultimate king, the one who would reign on David's throne, the great Messiah. Of course, they changed their minds a week later and yelled crucify him. Uh, but so, so now here they are, they're saying, this can't be the Messiah, can it? it it's like 80% no and 20% yes. The 80% no comes from the fact that he didn't fit their preconceived design for what a Messiah would be like. He didn't fit their preconception, but the 20% yes comes from the fact that they couldn't explain his miraculous power. Back in chapter 8, verse 27, it was the disciples who said, what kind of man is this? And when they saw his power on display, now the progression has gone one more step. Now the people are saying, this isn't the Messiah, is it? What would be the next step? This is the Messiah, isn't it? And then finally, the next step after that would be, this is the Messiah. Uh, so they're on the right path. And guess what? When the Pharisees hear the question, they go into instant panic. They, they've got to stop the process and stop it fast. I mean, they can't let it go any further. The very suggestion that this man might be the Messiah, no matter how remote still in their thinking, cannot be allowed to be introduced into their thinking. The, scribe, the Pharisees can't tolerate that. The scribes can't tolerate that. And the Herodians can't tolerate that. I mean, if they get any idea about the fact that this could be the Messiah, the game is up as far as the Pharisees are concerned because Jesus has already blasted them in Matthew 5 to 7 and said that their righteousness doesn't equal what's necessary for the kingdom and that their treatment of every dimension of life, both religious and secular, is a violation of God's original intention. So they couldn't possibly survive the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the end of them. And so that brings us to the next element, which is the accusation by the Pharisees. Look at verse 24. Well, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees heard what the people in the crowd are saying to one another, and they panicked. There's no way they could deny that Jesus had done an incredible miracle. And so the best they can come up with is that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Now, it's likely that wherever this event took place, that the Pharisees are standing some distance from Jesus, perhaps at the back of the crowd, 
near enough to see and hear what's going on. So when the crowd starts asking one another about the possibility that Jesus might be the Messiah based upon his incredible miracles, the Pharisees begin to poison the crowd. They're, they're making these remarks to the people, not to Jesus. A good indicator of that is in verse 25, where it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Uh, that assumes he didn't hear what they said, but he doesn't need to actually hear them because he could read their minds. So they're poisoning the people, and they're saying he does this by the power of Beelzebul. Now think about this. This is a monumental apologetic for the life of Christ. When his enemies hated him the most they could do, uh, do uh, when his enemies who hated him, the most they could do was conclude that what he did, he did by supernatural power. They couldn't deny that. But there are his enemies. They still can't deny it. Can't argue with what he did. So they come along and they try to argue for some other kind of explanation for Jesus' miracles. And to do that is to be a fool. Uh, scripture not only gives us the testimony of his friends, it gives us the testimony of his enemies. Uh, that he's doing things that were beyond human capability. I mean, you can't come along with any of that patronizing stuff about him being a great man, a nice guy, and a good teacher. Uh, his friends won't let you get away with that, and now neither will his enemies. Uh, that is a category of information that Jesus does not allow you to stand in. You must conclude that he is supernatural. Then it becomes an issue of whether you think it's because he's of God's kingdom or he's of Satan's kingdom. Because those are the only two supernatural kingdoms that exist. Now, obviously, the Pharisees weren't going to assign him to God, so they only had one alternative. So they see the issue very clearly. And thus, the Pharisees become some of the greatest defenders of the supernatural character of Christ. So then they have to defend the fact that he's supernatural. But they say, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now we saw the name Beelzebul back in chapter 10, verse 25. And in chapter 9, verse 33, we saw that the Pharisees were already accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. So this was their standard answer to explain Jesus' miraculous power. Now Beelzebul is a modified form of the name of the Philistine god Baalzebub, uh, which means Lord of the Flies, uh, who was considered to be the prince of demons, Satan himself. And this modified form, Beelzebul, of his name, is a play on words, because it means Lord of Manure. Uh, so apparently, the Jews called Beelzebub, Beelzebul, and uh, a derisive way of sort of telling the pagans, your Lord of the Flies is nothing but the Lord of the Manure, and it's easy to make that kind of play on words because flies tend to hang around piles of manure. So that's probably what they had in mind. And so through the centuries, this Lord of the Flies, or Lord of Manure, became a very common title for Satan. So to refer to the Prince of Demons, or Beelzebul, I was simply using one of the names for Satan. And Jesus recognized that because in verse 26, when he answers, 
he uses the word Satan in response to their word Beelzebub. So they're saying Satan is in him. Now they've already said demons are in him. That's recorded in chapter 8, in, in uh, John 8, 48. They already said that he's Satan, Beelzebub himself, back in Matthew 10, 25. Now they're saying Satan is in him. So no matter which way you look at it, they have ascribed to Jesus as being satanic. Isn't it interesting whether they said he's demon-possessed or whether they said he's Satan incarnate or Satan is in him, which is saying the same thing, they still recognize the supernatural character of what he does. He, which leaves them only those two options. He's either of God or he's of Satan. They opt for Satan. But let me say that by their own ap apologetics, if they're wrong about him being Satan, what option does that leave us? Only one, that he is God. Now watch how Jesus deals with that and destroys their stupid accusation. And that brings us to the answer to his accusers in verses 25 to 30. Let's read it. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against itself, then how will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. The Pharisees didn't say anything to Jesus. They said it to the crowd. They, they wouldn't confront him, but he confronts them. He didn't hear what they said, but he read their thoughts. And Matthew just slides that in case you have any question about his power. He read their thoughts. Now, if this was the same time as an event that is recorded in Mark 3, he was in a house when the Pharisees started making these remarks to the crowd. In other words, he's inside the house, and they're standing with the crowd that was gathered around the outside trying to look in and see what was happening. And it says there in Mark that he called them to himself. They weren't going to confront him, but he's going to confront them and expose them. Now think about this. These guys would have been the only people in the crowd who knew that Jesus read their minds. The other people to whom the Pharisees had spoken would have assumed that Jesus was told what they were saying. But the Pharisees would have known that he'd read their minds. He is demonstrating his, direct, his divine power directly to them so that they would recognize that he was from God, not Satan. And Jesus answers their accusation by telling them that there are three things wrong with it. It was absurd, it was prejudiced, and it was rebellious. Let's look at each one. First of all, the accusation is absurd. Then in the last part of verse 25 and verse 26, he says to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now that's what we call a truism. It's axiomatic. You don't have to have a PhD or be Phi Beta Kappa or a member of Mensa to figure it out. 
uh, a kingdom divided against itself is going to fall. A house divided against itself is going to fall. A city divided against itself is going to fall. You can't have civil war and survive. You can't unify one against the other and survive. You, but you can destroy one or the other. You, you can't have chaos in a house, chaos in a city, chaos in a nation without having the whole thing begin to fall apart. We certainly see that happening in our nation today, don't we? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. I mean, anyone can understand that principle, and so they should understand it. And then he makes the application in verse 26. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So when he made that statement in verse 25, they would have to nod and say, that's true. Sure, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. A house against this divided, a city can't stand. So if Satan's casting out Satan, then he's divided against himself. How is his kingdom going to survive? In other words, do you guys think Satan is so stupid that he's going to destroy his own kingdom? That he's going to have to have all these demons casting each other out and defeating their purpose. That he's going to set up a plan <coughs> and have one bunch of demons work the plan and another bunch try to stop them. I mean, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would it? Give Satan a little credit, folks. Outside of the Trinity, he's the most intelligent being in existence. So your conclusion, the con their conclusion is absurd and asinine. Now follow Jesus' reasoning here. He did deeds that can only be explained as supernatural. Since even his critics knew that, they had only one of two choices. Either he did them by the power of Satan, or he did them by the power of God. They chose the power of Satan. Jesus says that's absurd. What alternative is left? By their own, and by their own stupidity, they're forced into the very obvious truth that what he does, he does by the power of God. He's putting them in a corner with their own words. Satan's not going to go around trying to destroy his own work. But Jesus spent all of his ministry casting out Satan. If he's doing that by the power of Satan, then Satan is destroying his own kingdom. And believe me, that's not his goal. Now let me just say two things. I want you to notice footnotes at this point. While I don't believe Satan is going to go around casting out Satan all the time, I do believe there is inconsistency in Satan's kingdom. So don't be surprised if you look at how Satan operates if you do see from time to time that he's inconsistent. It's very important to note that, and the reason is very simple. Satan is utter evil. He is utter evil, and utter evil will be utterly chaotic because evil is chaos. And so within Satan's domain, there will be chaos. And in that chaos, there will be inconsistency. Plus, he is not omnipotent, so he really can't control everything. He's not omniscient, so he doesn't really know everything. He's not omnipresent, although he can fly fast and pick up any information he needs pretty quickly. So he's, he's not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And because there's chaos and evil, there will be a certain sense in which there's chaos in his kingdom, but not to the extent that he's going to go around casting himself out. 
I mean, he may have a pile of uncooperative demons over here messing with something he'd rather not have them mess with at some particular moment, but he himself will not dwell within an individual and go around and cast himself out. Let me add another footnote. <clears throat> I believe there are times when Satan disguises himself as a worker for God and pretends to be casting out demons to reinforce that he's on God's side. I think that can be seen in the history of exorcisms in the Roman Catholic Church system. It can also be seen in some of the modern exorcisms by some cults and charismatic false teachers and exorcists where there is appearance that demons are being cast out. But that is a deception to make people think that this is God's way of dealing with Satan when in fact it isn't. And I don't think those exorcisms actually happen. I think Satan deceives and limits and changes the actions of the demon within the person in order to give the impression of a cleansing. The person is still controlled by the demon but operates in a different way. So while we agree that Satan may deceive and on some occasions want us to think that he's casting out demons by the power of God, and while there's going to be chaos in a chaotic evil system, at the same time the statement Jesus makes is true. Satan will not go around casting out his demons and defeating his system. Uh, therefore, if Jesus is doing this and it's the flow of his life and his ministry, you can be sure that he's not of Satan. So the Pharisees' accusation was absurd. Well, let me see how much, how long this section is. Okay, let's do this next section. The next point, the accusation's prejudice. Look at verse 27. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? In other words, he's saying, well, let's suppose for a moment that you're right. But don't your sons do the same thing? If they do the same thing, by whose power do they do it? Now, let's answer the question, who are the sons? Well, it's simply a reference to the sons of the Pharisees, which is a way of saying the disciples of the Pharisees. In 2 Kings 2.3, it talks about the sons of the prophets. It was a Jewish way of referring to the followers and disciples of a certain group. And there were certain people who sat at the feet of the Pharisees to learn their system, their legalism, their approach to life, and they became known, as it were, as the sons or the disciples of the Pharisees. And among those were groups of the sons of the Pharisees who were involved in exorcisms. The Jewish historian Josephus talks about them. They were guys who were going around trying to cast out demons with strange incantations and strange rites that they performed. In fact, there's a group of seven of them discussed in Acts 19, verses 13 to 16, where they even tried to invoke Jesus' name in the process of an attempt to cast out a demon from a man. And they were trying, as it were, to attach Jesus to their activity and use his name because it seemed to have so much magical power. And the demon says to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the demon-possessed man jumped on them and beat up all seven of them so bad they ran out of the house naked and battered and bruised. Demon didn't care about them because they had no power from God. But there were groups of Jewish exorcists who were no doubt disciples of the Pharisees. 
They certainly wouldn't be disciples of the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't even believe in demons. Uh, and Jesus' point here in Matthew 12 is, hey guys, you've got your own sons trying to do the very same thing. Why would you say I do it by the power of Satan unless you're just totally and utterly prejudiced against me? Because when they do it, and it isn't even legitimate, you ascribe it to God. But when I do it and the evidence is irrefutable, you ascribe it to Satan. It's the same activity on the surface. It just shows how prejudiced you are against me. And that's the heart of the matter in dealing with Jesus Christ. People do not reject Jesus because there's a lack of evidence that he is God. They reject him because they're biased against him. And they're biased for the most part because men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They don't want the intimidation that Christ brings to their sinful life. And in their prejudice, instead of being open to receive him, they push him away. And in doing that, they have to conclude absurd and prejudiced things about him. He then takes it a step further and says, you do realize that your sons will be your judge in this argument, don't you? Let's bring them in and ask him a simple question. By whose power do you cast out demons, God or Satan? Now, what's the obvious answer that those exorcists would say? They would say they did it by God's power, right? If they said they did it by the power of Satan, they would betray the whole system. They would condemn themselves. But on the other hand, if they say they do it by the power of God, then they would be affirming that Jesus must also be doing it by the power of God. So Jesus has caught them in their own argument. And all it does is reveal that they were prejudiced and biased against him. There is a third aspect of their argument that Jesus' answer reveals, and that's that the accusation was rebellious, but we will have to stop and wait until next week to uh, do that. Any questions or comments before we go? Every, yes. I said 13 to 16. Acts 19, 13 to 16. Okay. Yes. The sons of the Pharisees that were cast out demons were saved. No, they're they're disciples of the. But they're going around. They had their own rights and just like the Catholic Church has its own exorcism rights today. These guys had their own exorcism rites that they used. It was all a farce. Exactly. And the apostles, they had the gift to cast out a demon, is that right? Yes. So today we only pray for that person's salvation and give them the gospel. Right. Try to in the name of Jesus. No. Okay. I have nothing to say to Satan. He's a lot more stronger and more powerful than I am. Um, okay, anything else? Frank. My gracious Father, we thank you for your, your incredible power. And we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ came and Lord, he did die on the cross. He rose again. He conquered Satan and sin and death so that in him we have peace. In him we have 